Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Hit List Podcast. A podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list by watching them. I'm joined today by another reaction YouTuber. We have Kendra from Black and Blue Tube on YouTube. Welcome Kendra, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thanks for having me. So for those of you who don't know about Kendra and her work, she and her sister... They do reaction videos, like I just said. The one I watched that made me, like, subscribe was when they reacted to Zack Snyder's Justice League. And that was a fun one. That was a really fun one. And the second one that, like, I was like, okay, I like these these two was Candyman, the one, the old one. (laughs) That was, like... (laughs) (laughs) That was quite the rewatch, because I felt the same thing, like, when I was watching that movie for the first time uh, back in 2020, when I first started this podcast. So... Kendra, I have a couple questions for you before we get started. Whenever you sit down to watch a movie, do you choose something new or do you stick to your favorites? Like whenever you have downtime. Uh, you know, nowadays I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I stick to my favorites. Um, and especially now that I have the channel, it's kind of hard to just watch new things because I'm always like, oh man, I need to react to that. Um, so it's usually like, oh, I'm in the mood to laugh. I, you know, I want to watch Christmas Vacation. I don't know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it's just something that I grew up with and it all. I know it's going to make me laugh. Yeah, I know I can predict all the feelings I'm going to have. So there it is. Easy choice. Yeah, there's no shame in that. Like, it can be a little annoying. Like, you catch yourself doing it, but if there's like a certain mm. mood you want to feel, it's nice to put on like your favorites. Like, I said this on Twitter, um, and I'm gonna stand by it. Like, one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies of all time that I'll rewatch any day is Rush Hour because I know exactly how it makes me feel every <laughs> time I watch it. And I love yeah. Chris Tucker. I love Jackie Chan. Probably the greatest yeah. duo of the '90s. If I if I do say so myself. So. Yeah. My second question for you is, if you wrote a book, what genre would you write in? Um, Horror, mm. without a doubt. It is one of my favorite genres of anything ever. I love books. I love suspenseful music. <laughs> I love um, horror soundtracks. I love horror movies. I love being scared. I love everything about horror. So if I wrote a book, it would definitely be probably a ghost story because I love those. Mm. I love it. I love it. I recently got into horror like a couple years ago because for the longest I've I've for the longest time I've been a scaredy cat, but now I'm trying I'm I oh. truly I'm truly starting to appreciate the horror films and the yeah. horror stories. There's a lot to That's it. like the best reason to watch is because it's gonna scare you. I I mm-hmm. am a total scared cat. I I'm so scared of the dark. I see things in the shadows. I believe in ghosts. And I watch that stuff because I, I love the adrenaline of like being scared out of my mind and my scalp is tingling and all that shit. I love it. <laughs> I like it because I like to pretend like um I can fight it. But then we all know the person who thinks they can fight it is the one that dies first. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you got to run. That's the first instinct. <laughs> run away, sir. <laughs> oh, that actually reminds me. Um, Quick anecdote. Back in like 2016... I was walking with some friends, like we were out in the woods, you know, and it was like dark, right? We were just left a party and this one kid, um, I don't want to say kid because like we were like early 20s. He said like, yo, are there any clowns, any killer clowns happening out here? You guys run, I'll take care of it. And I'm like, wait, oh what? <laughs> Why would there be killer clowns there? <laughs> First I'm not all. sure if you guys remember back in 2016, there were a bunch of like videos of like clowns showing up on viral on social media oh my God, that's right i used to think it was because it the it movie like the stephen king's it was coming out like the next year or the year before i forgot mm-hmm. what happened and i thought that was yeah. just like a viral campaign that just got out of hand 
I'm still not sure why there were so many clowns, but he just said that. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I don't know what experience you have with martial arts or like fighting experience, but like if there is like a horror villain, I think our best option is to run. You'll probably still die. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I mean, sure. All right. That fighting, but I'm going to die running. Um, and about that clown thing, it is funny. I remember that I, I've been working in advertising for a long time. And when that started, um, I, we made a campaign out of it. And I think part of the research was that it was both. It was like, it, it is the thing that was just kind of happening. That was just like dudes dressed as clowns, like hanging out on street corners, but then it became sort of a viral thing. So more and more people started doing it just so that maybe somebody will catch me. I'm going to stand in these bushes (laughs) for a few (laughs) hours, you know? So yeah, that, that is funny because it was a crazy sort of thing that just mutated and got really bad for a while. Yeah. 2016 was the time. It was the time. So the films we've been discussing today have both recently been nominated for the 2022 Academy Awards. We have Spencer and Dune. So before we get into all that, I just want to list out the, the Academy Award nominations. So Spencer has won for Best Actress for Kristen Stewart. And that's her first one. That I just saw that it's her first Academy Award nomination. I'm really proud of her because she did a really good job. She's, yeah. she's a great actress. She is. For Dune... Uh, it got 10 Academy Award nominations, and I believe one of them was snubbed, and I'm a little a little mad at that. But, you know, for the other 10, that's really great to hear. So we have Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Visual Effects. The one I think was snubbed was Best Director, because you need someone in charge of all of that to make sure that's such a great film. But the fact that 10, you had 10 Academy Award nominations. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Wow. And it's, and they're all well-deserved. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I saw this movie, and I, when I learned it was only $165 million in the budget, I was like, what? Really? Only $165 million in the budget. So that, that means Denis Villeneuve, the director, he knows how to spend the money. He should have, yeah, he should have gotten something. He should have gotten a nomination. Best guy to handle the budget. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's all part of it, man. Like, it, I've, you know, a lot of directors are just like, ah, whatever, my art. <laughs> but, I mean, to find a way to do something that looks so beautiful and is so well done within budget and on such a budget, I think is uh, an accomplishment, serious accomplishment great accomplishment but first we're gonna talk about spencer for this one real quick oh yeah sorry get excited about dune okay spencer yeah so spencer is a 2021 historical fiction psychological drama film directed by pablo lorraine and written by stephen knight the film is inspired by princess diana's decision to end her marriage to prince charles and leave the british family Kristen stewart and jack farving star as princess diana and prince charles respectively joined by timothy spall sean harris and sally hawkins this film was on Kendra's list. Why was this film on your list, Kendra? It was on my list because I have always, ever since I was a kid, um, been kind of enamored with Princess Diana. And I also have always really liked um, Kristen Stewart. I know that people judge her for her past, um, especially because of the role she played in Twilight and also because of, you know, scandals she had with, you know, Mr. R. Pets. Um, but I've always found her to be a, a pretty 
captivating actress you know even when she was doing all that sputtering in twilight <laughs> i found it was a bunch of girly sputtering but it was convincing do you know what i mean people <laughs> overlooked that um and i found her just as captivating in spencer I, I had a feeling that i would and i just wanted to see what she was capable of and i trusted that she would bring something to, because a lot of people, well, maybe not a lot, but a few people have played Princess Diana and a lot of people have their ideas about who she was as a person. So I wanted to see what Kristen Stewart would do with a role like this and how she would choose to embody Diana. And I wasn't disappointed. I will say I'm not too familiar with Princess Diana. I'm the type of guy that's like very democratic. I don't follow the royal mm -hmm. families of any <laughs> nation whatsoever. I'm like, I'm an American. I, I bow to no one, okay? <laughs> um, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when I was like young and one of Diana's sons got married. He was the first one who got married and Kate, to Kate Middleton. I think that's her name. Yeah, yeah. And people were like obsessed with that. There was so much coverage on that, like the length of this dress. And I'm like, what is your obsession with people, with this couple who has absolutely no power beyond being famous for for titles that don't really have any power at all anymore. I just, yeah. I can, I can never understand it. <laughs> I don't blame you. I really don't. And I, I've heard of documentaries. I've never seen documentaries of like Princess Diana and like, I know how she died. And like, I was very, it's, it was a tragic way to die. Just horrible way to die. Yeah, it was. And beyond that, I have no context for her whatsoever. So that's why mm. when I watched this film, I didn't even watch the trailer. I just knew it was about Princess Diana and Kristen Stewart was playing her. I was like watching the first few minutes and like she's like driving somewhere. And I'm thinking like, does she have like security to do that for her? And like she's like really stressed out and that she didn't want to be at the Christmas party, whatever. I'm like, what is mm -hmm. going on here? And then later on, you get, you get, <laughs> I kind of got the context like, oh, okay. So she, she, she knows that her husband cheated on her. She's trying to like find out what to do next. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. But overall, what did you think of the film? Like, you, you already said you like Chris Stewart's performance, but of the whole film, what did you think? I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't know how I would like the film because, I, you know, I agree with you. I, I was never obsessed with the royals. And the reason why I liked Diana is because she always seemed so different from them. And that's the reason why a lot of people were obsessed with her, because she seemed unlike them, a genuine person and a person she always seemed so damn sad um and when she died um so much came out about what she was going through behind the scenes and you just kind of related to her even more and so i think that in a lot of ways kristen stewart um could be compared to princess diana not in the oh everyone loves her but in the way that the scrutiny of the fans, the press of Hollywood can affect a person who is otherwise a genuine person and otherwise a person who might suffer a little bit under that scrutiny, who might, you know, Diana just wanted to be in love with her husband, marry her husband, raise her children. She was going to take on the responsibility of, you know, her role in that family, but then she experienced what it's actually like and what it's actually like is what she said several times she made several allusions to what it was like i think at one point she compared herself to a, a mosquito in a petri dish or, or something you know <laughs> the way that she was being inspected and watched and you know it was like 
one of the scenes where it was just a quiet little scene where like the servants are watching her on the news and they're like, oh, she wore the wrong outfit. And the way they talked about it was like, oh, she made a, a mistake instead of no, she just didn't feel like wearing that and decided to wear something else. <laughs> like what exactly. the hell? And constantly being under that pressure. And whenever you question that pressure, they act like you're crazy. Eventually, you're gonna go crazy, <laughs> you know, because there's who who else but her children did she have for comfort, for solace, to be genuine with, just to be her damn self with, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's why I fell in love with Diana, and that's why I really loved this movie because they portrayed it in a very careful and a very genuine, but also kind of a creepy. There was a creepy sort of disturbing element to it when the music would change and it would yes. turn into like that classic horror, like weird, weird violin yeah. music yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, when she was under all that scrutiny, like, I don't know about you, but I have anxiety. So I can see the anxiety all through that girl, both in the actress and in the, the, the woman she's playing. And those moments where they're like so tight on her um, and the, the music is going and everything. And she's like about to throw up because the pressure and the people are so much like, I've never been under so much pressure that I've developed bulimia, but mm. I understand that anxiety and how scrutiny and pressure and the um and people not allowing you to be yourself i understand how that feels so that's that's why i appreciated the movie the cinematography was great everything looked beautiful everybody performed very well but that is the real reason that i enjoyed that movie gotcha i will say um i didn't understand those gave me like a psychological take on this they even said in the first screen the first frame it says a fable from a true tragedy so mm -hmm. it's not exact it's not supposed to be factual at all it's supposed to be like a fictional story based on what happened and so like everything you see we're, we're not really sure if she saw hallucinations of like Anne Boylan or whatever we don't know that's pop that's something that they just made up just for the for the fact of the story so I really liked it as well I didn't understand what's going on at first I'm like oh okay I, I get it now so like when she was eating the pearls I was like oh, oh. she's imagining it I was like ooh, ooh. <laughs> But I, there was one point when she's like going through like she there's a scene in the film where it's like her past selves right and she's just like running for the hallways i had no idea what was going i even wrote down my notes i don't know what's going on but i really like it <laughs> yeah yeah it's it plays with your your i don't know i don't know it just fucks with your mind man and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why i I, I liked it. And I, I'm glad you brought brought it up because I was going to say like, this isn't like, it's not like they pulled these moments out of a book or something or, you know, heard her say, oh, I, you know, I like to play a, a little game with my sons or whatever. I'm, I'm sure they did take bits and pieces of her real life and her biography and everything. But I loved that they took all of that. And instead of trying to, to tell some fussy, straightforward story about the tragedy of Princess Diana, they went for this psychological, disturbing kind of, you know, anxiety-inducing angle that made it so much more interesting um, a, a watch to me. I was kind of a, afraid that it would be very dry and, you know, very long, yeah. drowned-out scenes that went nowhere and everybody's talking all quiet and shit, um, which kind of happened, but I, I, but, <laughs> but I was so distracted by the atmosphere that they created that it did, I, I didn't mind it. 
Yeah, definitely. I could kind of feel some of that happening when they were all like saying hush to themselves like she's late or whatever. Like the beginning of the film, she's late. Oh, that's mm-hmm. unusual. That means he will be late. Or like some stuff you'll see on like Down Downton Abbey or something like that. <laughs> yeah, which I, I actually really love Downton Abbey. <laughs> I've never seen it, so I can't really say much about it. I can't really like make jokes about Down Abbey because I've never seen it. But that's what it, like what it would feel like it would have been if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, oh, okay, it looks like I'm gonna watch like one of those PBS specials. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was gonna be in in for one of those. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, which I've never actually watched one. It, it was always something like because those are like public broadcasting station. I think that's the full initial name. Mm-hmm. So like it's available on every TV throughout the country and. Whenever, whenever your parents don't have the means to have cable, that's usually something you'll watch, like PBS mm-hmm. Kids. I'm not ashamed to say mm-hmm. I watched Arthur. I loved Arthur. But yeah. it reached a, cer- a certain hour. I think at, like at 12 p.m., that's when they stopped showing the kids' shows and started showing stuff aimed more for adults. Those like old British dramas always like show up. I'm like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. They used to have like these old British comedies, um that for whatever reason when I was a kid I used to watch like late at night it would be like up what was it are you are you being served Mm. and like um just just these old weird ass British comedies and for whatever reason I was kind of fascinated with them for a little while when I was a kid so I am like familiar with that kind of like brown britishness you know so I thought (laughs) like I was gonna be in in store for that but it was actually a beautifully lush film um which helped because i love that kind of shit like that really gets my engine revving if 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 something is beautiful to look at um, that was one of the reasons i loved Zack snyder's justice league because the man just filled Mm. the screen with so much for my eyes it was gorgeous but anyway yeah yeah quick note about that i'm really i don't say i'm really pissed about it but i'm frustrated that that didn't get a nomination for video visual effects you know, hmm. because Steppenwolf looked amazing. Like if you see, not, not even just like compared to like the 2017 version, but like just the suit of armor that he had on was amazing to look yeah, at. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really so, cool. But no, I went to Spider-Man instead, which I have <laughs> words to say about that movie. But I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to discuss it. I'm not going to discuss it. But let me just say like Jimmy Kimmel said some comments like I think yesterday or whatever that my friend pointed out to me that like, why didn't Spider-Man get more nominations or whatever? It, it earned this much money. It has all this like percentage on Rotten Tomatoes. And I, I, I want to say this. The Academy Awards, to nominate a film, it doesn't have to be successful in the box office. It has to be a great film. And there have been times where like they will like put a popular movie up there. Mm-hmm. But there are reasons why. And I think they I think they put No Way Home up there because they want like those Marvel stands to like watch the Academy Awards, because, like, the Academy Awards has been going down in viewership for a very long time. I mean, that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. <laughs> and that's all I'll say about it. I am not <laughs> disagreeing with you at all. Um, the Academy Awards have definitely jumped the shark to sound like an old lady. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, there's a lot of fashion in, in this in this mm-hmm. film, as we discussed. Like, she had, like, dresses to choose from. What was your favorite dress or like what was your favorite outfit? You know, to be perfectly honest, that getup that she was wearing 
Um, well, I really like the one that she was wearing when she ate those pearls. I know she hated it, um, but um, I just love that color. Um, and and I, but I also really, really love that outfit she was wearing at the beginning of the the movie. Mm-hmm. That was actually an outfit that signaled to me, okay, so there's gonna be fashion, <laughs> and I'm going to love it and just the way that it fit on her and everything about it like the coat and the skirt and everything I was like damn I want that outfit you know I Mm -hmm. wanted most of what she wore but like I just I don't know that was just one of my favorites because I could definitely see that being like functional and like you know everything else was very extravagant and you know they're very rich people so I, I would be afraid that I would like get some fucking weed resin on it or something you know what i'm saying but (laughs) but that outfit um that looked like it was functional so that was one of the reasons why it was my favorite yeah that's a good one i'll say mine is the one where she where she went to church in like it was the red and the black like i saw so many posters for it and i saw it in person i I didn't say it person but like saw it on screen it just looks Mm -hmm. so elegant it just looked amazing and the costume designer for this let me see what was her name again I have it written down. Jacqueline Duran, who's a costume designer, she, all the outfits are in the film aren't necessarily accurate as to like what she actually wore in real life. They're mm-hmm. like more inspired than anything else. And also some other facts about the film is that Chanel, like the fashion brand got involved with the film and, and like gave them like four dresses, four outfits for them to use in the film. Some stuff from the archives, essentially. Nice. I wonder if one of those was the church outfit because it looked very, uh, I'm not like I'm a fashion person. Please, God, fashion people out there listening, don't like send me hate mail. But it looked kind of Chanel-y. <laughs> you know, it looked like it could have come from Chanel because um, it was gorgeous. Someone who I really actually really appreciated seeing was Timothy Spaulding. I just really like him. I like it when he shows up. I've only seen him in like, you know, fun stuff like Harry Potter and, you know, Ever After stuff like that he was the page right mm-hmm. yeah and ever after yeah yeah he was great he was mm-hmm. really good like he had a job to do and he made sure he did his job you know yeah what were some things you found um weird in this film beyond like the pearl eating stuff well i just i kind of found her behavior a little weird i found some of her responses to the situation she was in a little weird because i i guess just because we're just different people and um not not that of course diana herself actually did that but the way that they chose to portray it and even the way that Kristen performed it like when she was like i gotta masturbate i was like ah (laughs) (laughs) i mean i know you were trying to get the lady out of the room or whatever but could you like come up with something else (laughs) you know and like you know i just the way she would choose to sort of make little comparisons instead of just coming out and saying, you guys are fucking killing me. Um, you're stifling me too much. I need to be free. She would say, oh, I feel like a, an insect in a Petri dish, you know, and it's, you know, and she only really, and she didn't even really, not that I guess you would because they're children. She didn't even really truly tell her truth, her children, the whole truth. She just took comfort and solace in them. And, and me personally, you know, they'd have had to just kick me out, you know, they just had to just kick me out of there and just went on about their business because I just I would not have been able to abide it. I would have taken my kids and gotten the hell out of there, you know, so I, I you know, I just found some of her some of her behavior. I just found odd 
and it it didn't help that in in those moments that creepy ass music would would creep up yes. <laughs> into it um it just made it all the more creepy <laughs> um and it's oh, just it, i'll tell you one thing it just definitely convinced me that whatever people think about being a royal or whatever like no the answer to that is no beware <laughs> yeah for real it's a lot of responsibility and like keeping up with looks from mm-hmm. what i can tell and something i found weird was the tradition of weighing the people before oh yeah weird. that was fucking weird yeah I think that was made up for the film. I didn't see anything like where that's factually correct or whatever. But even then, it sounds like it's something that they did back then, like way, way back when. Mm -hmm. But that's such a weird thing to to like do. Like, did you really enjoy your Christmas dinner? We we don't know because you didn't gain three pounds Mm -hmm. at minimum. I'm like, what? (laughs) Excuse me. I believe it could be a joke somebody told, but then to actually make it a tradition and to keep that tradition for like however many hundred years or whatever. (laughs) And you like make people do it. You like make people do it. If it was made up, what it demonstrates to me about the Royals is pitch perfect in my opinion. Yeah. I'm just thinking like the conversation, like someone just said it offhandedly while they're drunk. Like now, like only way we could tell if people really enjoyed the dinner is if they gained three pounds or whatever. And then the next year they do it. I'm like, hey, it was your idea. No, no, dude, I was joking. <laughs> I was three drinks deep. <laughs> well, it's too late now. It's a tradition. <laughs> Can't go back. So we talk about her sons and like how she found solace with them. So I found it very sweet, very cute when she was playing the soldier game with them. It's like, soldier, what's the best part of Christmas? Best so part adorable. is the family. Soldier, I said, tell the truth. <laughs> They were so sweet. I, I really appreciated seeing that because that, you know, her relationship with her sons is something that, of course, is factually true and kind of like one of the most known things about her and them. Um, and so that scene mm-hmm. for me in particular, did I cry? I might have cried. Um, and then I love later when like the gift she gave them, like it was like, I just, oh, I just got them at the petrol station. And I just thought that was so <laughs> cute because silly things like that was what held them together and like kept them Mm -hmm. real and kept them you know she made sure that she kept her children grounded in at least one real relationship (laughs) you know because everybody else around them it seemed only expected them to just behave with you know tradition so i i just really appreciated seeing it and yeah you know that she made me cry because damn well, I don't know about you, but I have like a really, really close relationship with my mother and I'm a twin, of course. And so we growing up had that kind of, you know, she didn't, she, we didn't play soldier games or whatever, but we did, you know, we did talk to her a lot. We shared a lot with her. And so I, I just, me personally, I'm very much connected with that. Um, you know, the, everybody has something that they can appreciate, I think in a movie like this it's not for everybody definitely um but i certainly think if you are a person who appreciates film at the very least there's something to appreciate about this film it's surprising to me in a way yeah it's great and we also mentioned the music it's so tense you're like holy crap and also the thing about this movie that someone pointed out is if her sons were in if her sons weren't there, this would have been a full-on horror movie. 
Yeah. If her sons Agreed. weren't there, because she would have no support system, no no person, no people to confide in, whatever. Mm-hmm. She even told her son, like, if I'm acting a little silly, please mm-hmm. let me know. Because you'd be the only person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that part really, really struck me because I was like, damn, that's true. That is only really the only two people she can trust is, uh, and really, mm-hmm. actually, it's just the oldest, <laughs> really, because the youngest <laughs> is young. Um, yeah, like she would probably be throwing up and throwing herself down the hall hallucinating the past selves like Mm -hmm. the whole freaking time um so i'm so glad that she had them in real life and in the movie because in a movie like that like it can't be tension the whole damn time Mm -hmm. there has to be some relief somewhere so i'm glad that there were some quiet moments and there were some moments that were sweet and tender and her away from all of that because it really needed, truly. So the music is changed at the end. And that's something I really appreciate about the music. Because throughout the whole film, it's tension. Tension, tension, tension. It feels like something's about to creep out around the other corner or whatever. It feels like something's going to happen. And stuff does happen. But the reason I felt the, the tone changed was because of the music changed. So at the end, they play a song from like the 80s. All I need is a miracle. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a teenager coming of age story, you know, because she's rebelling against him. She's like, screw this. I'm leaving. I'm out taking my kids. We're going out. I'm taking like taking the convertible. We're going to KFC. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Even the edits were like cut fast, you know, because before it was like, it'll like hold on people. They'll hold on her face or whatever. But this time you can see like things happening really fast. Like you can even see the queen looking down on. Uh, what's his name? Prince Charles, or whatever. Like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it felt like. Um, what is that movie that I think uh, Francis Coppola, the Coppola daughter, and it was about the girl who got her head chopped off, the chick, and it had Kristen Dunst. Ah, anyway, it was. Um, it was about. Um, what is the chick marie antoinette it was about marie antoinette Ah. um it felt kind of like that and i agree with you yeah and and actually to be honest with you i didn't even like notice because i was so fascinated with what was going on and i was just so by that time i was just so ready for like relief (laughs) i was just like happy that it was happening but i'm glad you brought it up because that i agree with you um but anyway but yeah i totally agree with you i that was a really awesome to see. And I don't know if that actually happened uh, like that, um, but mm-hmm. it made me nevertheless happy that Princess Diana could have maybe possibly had a moment like that. But anyway, um, and it was a good way to, to end things. Cause yeah, you're right. It, the, the, from the moment the movie started, um the tension just kept ramping up and ramping up until it broke and i think of course that was the point like they were pushing her out the door the whole time since the moment she got there kendra can you tell me any final thoughts you had on the film yeah i i just i really hope kristen stewart wins i really do (laughs) i think she deserves it um i don't think i've seen her in a few movies and i i don't think i've seen her quite this good i think she's gotten better with each role that she's taken and i think she deserved that nomination 
Um, I, <laughs> you know, you asked me about the costuming yesterday and I was like so spaced out that I like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, and I'm not like, don't get me wrong. I'm not like a fashion chick. I'm not well-versed at all. I honestly don't really care, but <laughs> I think she looked damn good in everything she wore. And I forgot to mention that white dress that's on the cover of the, um, yes. it's like on the cover of the movie. And like, mm. you know, she ran to the, her, her old house and almost died in the damn thing, but it was just so, I loved it because it was so gore. It remained so gorgeous through all the mud and the darkness and the dankness and all that trouble and turmoil that she was in, that dress was just stunning. And that was one of the things about the, the way the film was shot and the quality of the, the cinematography. And the, I would love to hear more about this director of photography because the lighting and everything was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was all just very beautiful. Definitely. And two notes about like the, just in costume design, Kristen Stewart, she's not that tall of a person, but Princess Diana was. So they mm -hmm. had to like, accentuate her dresses her you know her costume to make her look taller and mm -hmm. that'll, that'll mean like making some of the sleeves longer make moving her hips up a little word upwards a little mm -hmm. bit a lot of stuff that i'm not too familiar with i didn't even notice that at first i, I it's something that i didn't care about but that's something that they put more detail in that they yeah cared cared about enough to like put that in there and i really appreciate them for that dedication it's just the small things like that this shows how much dedication there was to this film. And also that white dress, the one that's on the poster, that was one of the dresses that was provided by Chanel. And I thought that was like really cool. Yeah, that definitely looks like a chanel mm -hmm. <laughs> It's a chanel looking dress. Um, and yeah, I do appreciate the way they draped her body um, because she did look taller. And I also noticed that I could see that Kristen did things with her body herself to make herself look a little ganglier and taller than she actually is. Just sort of like exaggerating her. The way she would like sink her head into her shoulders and stuff like a tall person would. I just, I just, I just loved what she did. And, and the costuming too. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Definitely. It's something that I'm also a tall person. I don't notice that I'm doing that myself. I kind of shrink myself for other people because mm -hmm. uh, I come from a Latino family and everyone else is short and I'm like the only exception. <laughs> and, and then I'll go for like school like, Jason, why are you so tall? And I'm like, I don't even know, man. I, I don't even notice. Okay. I don't, why are you guys so short? What are you, why are you five one? I love being tall. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a full head taller than you. Okay. You don't need to like project saying like, How's the weather up there? It's pretty nice up here, okay? <laughs> it's pretty nice. How tall are you? I'm 6'1". It's like, it's tall. It's like not that tall. That's, that's, that is tall. That's taller than the average uh, man. And I'm 5'11". And so I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm taller than most of the women that I, that I meet. Um, it's so I, I totally get you. I love being able to reach up. <laughs> grab things so easily yeah yeah do you ever just say you're six feet because like it's like one inch i want to cheat i really want to cheat um <laughs> my hair could probably make up for it actually now that i right. think about it i probably could cheat if i wanted to but no i'm gonna be honest that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah and as far as like the production for spencer so on june 17th 2020 it was announced that Pablo Lorraine, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's L Lorraine. Larian, sure. Larraine. So, I cannot Pablo, my tongue. Yep. Pablo will direct <laughs> Spencer. And it will star Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana. 
And so it, it took place over 38 shooting days from January 28th to March 29th, 2021. And it's a chiefly location-based shoot. And as you can tell, it really adds more depth to the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have had the same effect if it was like a studio film. A good majority of shots were outside and a good majority were inside. They knew what they were doing, essentially. They did a great job with all that. Yeah, they didn't waste any of that. It was all very beautiful, but also at the same time, very claustrophobic, yes. which the film absolutely needed to to work the way that they wanted to, to portray it. So I'm glad that they went the way it did. And actually, yeah, I think the quality of it probably would have been a little lost if it was like a major studio film. Yeah. And that's something that Pablo is known for, like making a claustrophobic, like focus on the face, extreme close ups. He mm-hmm. He's done an- another biopic. I think I forgot the name of it, but it's about Jackie Kennedy, like days after John F. Kennedy died. Oh, right. That's right. He did that one. I should watch that. Now I want to watch it because I wasn't really interested in it when it came out. Me neither. Until until this. It's like he he knows what he knows how to make a good film. He he knows what he's doing. And as far as like the locations there, I, I got like so the way I do my notes, I put them in slideshows. Instead of like a huge document because it keeps track of everything. I have four yeah. slides just dedicated to locations. So I don't know how to pronounce some of these because <laughs> it's like German. <laughs> um, first one, I, I, it was Nordkirchen Castle in North Rhine-Westphalia, which was one of the main locations for Spencer. It's the 16th, 16th century palace serving as the interior and exterior of Sandringham, which like, you know, that's where like the, the royals were having their Christmas party. It's known as... Known as the Versailles of Westphalia. The other one, which I'm going to have a harder time saying, the Schloss Hotel Kronberg, which translates to Castle Hotel Kronberg near Frankfurt, also doubles as Sandringham in the movie. Wow, so they shot in Germany. That's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Like, I thought they would shoot in, like, Britain or whatever, but they're thinking about it. I'm like, how would they gotten the castle from the royal family to shoot right, <laughs> their yeah. stuff? When yeah. it's not, it doesn't show them in a good light at all. <laughs> also true, yeah. But I mean, it's all you know, European architecture and shit. So like, what American really is going to be able to tell? I could tell. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's funny because um, quick anecdote as well. I was in Denmark back in like towards the end of 2019, and it was like during Christmas time. It was like November, but it was like Christmas markets all over the place, mm-hmm. and the people could tell I was Hispanic. Even though we're all white, like uh, I, you know, I, I had to admit that I'm white, unfortunately, because I have Spanish genes. That the people who could tell were all European. People who couldn't tell were like American for some reason. They couldn't tell I wasn't. You know, that. no, that makes sense. <laughs> it's so funny because like the reason they could tell is because of my hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was walking throughout this Christmas market. And there was, like, this woman selling fudge because apparently, like, a lot of people from Spain will, like, go over to Denmark to, like, sell stuff at Christmas markets. I noticed a lot of that happening. And this woman called out to me in Spanish. It's like, venite para aquí. I'm like, I say back to her, como sabia? Like, how did you know? Uh, I could, how did you know I was, like, a Latino? Like, she's like, you look like, you look like one. <laughs> awesome i you know at least you had somebody there when i was in germany there was not a nobody around and i stood out like a sore thumb and i had i had a mohawk at the time god it was uh it was a great trip but i definitely attracted attention wherever i went (laughs) yeah yeah and the thing is like i made more friends with the locals than i did with the other travelers 
for some reason. They're friendly. Like I saw, like I heard, like I heard American accents. I'm like Americans, finally, like <laughs> someone I could talk to. And it was like a group of three girls, like, hey, I'm also American. Nice uh-huh. to meet you. It just struck me off. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Nah, man. The locals are very friendly there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Speaking of, like, food, the KFC. The KFC where they go to at the end of the film. Uh-huh. So that was in London. River Thames. That's where they shot that. And, I fu- and it's kind of based on real life as well because... She was known to take her sons out for fast food, and former royal chef Darren McGrady told Marie Claire, I remember the princess came onto the kitchen one day and said, cancel lunch for the boys, I'm taking them out, we're going <laughs> to McDonald's. Which is just such a normal mom thing to do, yeah, you know? that's all she wanted. She just wanted to be a mom, and, you know, I, what was that scene where he was like, oh, I thought you realized, and it's like, nah, man, nah, bro, you straight up didn't tell her. <laughs> she always just wanted to be in love with her damn husband and raise her damn kids. And the thing about the KFC mm. thing, um, in London, they're every freaking where. They love KFC really? in London. I don't know why they're so obsessed with KFC, but they love their fried chicken. And it's it's that and it's um oh god, what is it called? It's some kind of well, they they also love really love Indian food, right. but there's some kind of very specific type of food that they love that I can't really remember right now. But yeah, KFC's on every damn corner. Is it like meat based? It is, but maybe I'm getting it mixed up with Germany, which really loves what they call dunna kebab, which is just like street kebabs. It's just like uh, street right. meat, I guess. You know, if you're from if you've yeah, ever yeah, been to yeah. New York, so um, I might be getting the two mixed up. But definitely the KFC thing was uh quite uh familiar and very entertaining and it does seem like something that she would do <laughs> yeah speaking of which i went to 7-eleven in denmark as well mm-hmm. i was so mad that their 7-eleven was so much better than the one we have here <laughs> <laughs> i was so mad like the, they, they have like there? pastries oh oh man it, pastries and like those like pastries with like hot dogs inside i they're officially called pigs in a blanket, but yeah, like but it was, better. Oh. It was more, it was like an artisan craft of like this, mm. making this food. And I was like, and it was like fresh daily. I'm like, mm. what? <laughs> Excuse me? Why, why do we have, why do they have this so much better than over, over there? Everything's like manufactured at 7-Eleven. You know exactly what you're going to get. You can expect to, to be manufactured. Even at like the donuts and the pastries, you can expect that to come from a factory. But there, it was like, why is this fresh? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, I guess that's why chefs love to travel because as much as Mm -hmm. American food can be really good and delicious, we've definitely gotten so lazy and we're just so into mass production of everything. Um, It's kind of sad. (laughs) It's really kind of sad. Also, the Little Caesars, not not in Denmark, but in Honduras. I went to Honduras last summer to celebrate my birthday. Uh, That's where my mom's family is from. And we went to Little Caesars, and I was like, is this really, like, the best place to go? We have Little Caesars at home. And that pizza was probably, like, the best pizza I had in, like, in a while. And it was like, they actually made it there. And I was, like, so mad at that, too. Like, why does the Little Caesars at our at, – why does Little Caesars America taste like cardboard and this one taste, like, close to, close to Italian pizza? Yeah. You know, it was, like – what is going on here? I like, know. I might just move to the Gucci Garapa just for Little Caesars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is um, about America and its dependence on processed crap food. I really don't know. I wish it wasn't like that. It's crazy. So, 
the last two locations, well, not last two, last three. So St. Peter and St. Paul's Church in Norfolk was the filming location for the Christmas Day service in Spencer in the scene where she's like watching Carmilla and Charles laugh together outside the church. And it was also one church for the interior and one church for the exterior. That's it. That's how they did it. And Hunstanton Beach was like for the beach scene. And it's just five miles from the real life San State. Oh, okay. So yeah, those are a few locations that they had for the film. As someone who's watched a lot of films, I've noticed that stuff from like early 2000s, even especially in the 90s and whatever, I've noticed that a lot of them are like location based. And as we kind of move forward from like mid to late 2000s up till now, it's a lot studio based. But I might just that might just be like a bias because I've been watching a lot of big blockbuster movies. But even for like stuff like Spider-Man, if you remember from like 2000 Spider-Man, they shot at New York. And for the most recent one, you can kind of tell it's all shot in a studio. That's a good point. That's a really good point. They did. Um, and that was, I really, actually, it's a plan of mine to go back and rewatch um, those first uh, three Spider-Men for the channel because it's been so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've seen them since they first came out. Um, but yeah, you're right. They, they did use a lot of real location shots in that movie. And yeah, you're right. A lot of the stuff, Almost everything that, I, you know, studios like Marvel and, and uh, Warner Bros. and them have been pumping out is all fucking green, blue, <laughs> I don't know, fucking <laughs> pink. I don't know what they use anymore. Um, but um, and I was actually just watching um, behind the scenes on like the Mandalorian and the book Boba Fett and stuff like that. And like, you know, they're all very proud of the technology that they're developing and, and stuff in order to help them tell these stories. But it's all fake. <laughs> none of it is. They, they make it look really good. They do. But it's none of it is real. And that also kind of makes me sad. Yeah. And this isn't like a like we hate special effects no we, sure. we we love it it's yeah. it's advanced so much since like over the past 20 years just in the past 10 years it's advanced oh okay but <laughs> over 20 years it's advanced pretty well it's just like the over-reliance on it can like really dampen it yeah and there are some movies who do it very well and there's some movies who don't do it too well and it just kind of takes you out of the experience of the film really and does. the films that do do it very well that's actually the next film we're going to talk about. We're going to get right to it real quick. Yes. And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. Dune is a 2021 American epic science fiction film directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by Villeneuve, John Spates, and Eric Roth. It is the first of a two-part adaptation of the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, primarily covering the first half of the book. Set in the far future, it follows Paul Atreides as his family, the noble house Atreides, is thrust into a war for the deadly and inhospitable desert planet Arrakis. The ensemble cast includes Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, Zendaya, Javier Bardem, and so many more. And this film was on both of our lists. Jason, what did you think? So I will say... I stalled from watching this movie because it had such a huge ensemble mm-hmm. cast. And I have this prejudice against like ensemble cast because either they're really, really good, like Prince of Egypt, or they're mm-hmm. terrible. Like I can't think of a I can't think of a film, but there are movies where like they have an ensemble cast 
and they're yeah. just terrible. And the reason they have so many celebrities in it is because they know they'll sell. This one, I am very happy to say, is now one of my new favorite movies. It's very good. I love it. And I had my one of my friends who was on who's who's been in the podcast as well. His name's Zachiel. He told me when we were recording our New Year's Eve special from for this year. He said, "You haven't seen Dune, dude. You're like the one dude I would expect to watch Dune who would like corner me in a party and talk about Dune for three <laughs> hours." I'm like, "I know, man. I know. I just haven't seen it yet." <laughs> and so when you, <laughs> so when you suggested we watch it, I was like, "You know what? Fine. Let's let's." You might as well get to it. And one of my friends, Edmi, she really liked the movie as well. And I trust her opinion on films as well. So, like, let's watch it. Cool. And, yeah, it's great. What did you think? Uh, I also really, really loved it. I was riveted from the moment that it started. And I also had hesitated in watching it. A, because I kind of agree. There's something about these big budget, big production ensemble films that can just be a little bit, you know, been there, done that to me. Um, I remember I, I really didn't want to watch um, like the, the, the most recent Mad Max um, Fury Road because I was like, oh, well. It's just going to be, it's, I know it's going to be, but I actually ended up really loving it. And, and also be because actors like Timothy Chalamet is like one of those of the moment actors. And I just, I have yeah. this visceral sort of reaction to being pushed into being a fan of someone just because they want him to be like the new yeah. thing. But I was completely surprised and blown away by not only the caliber of his acting, but um, I really, really enjoyed this damn movie. I just, I just loved <laughs> this movie so much, um, and I that that was such a pleasant surprise. I, I was not expecting that. Definitely, I think I told you before we recorded. I have a film professor who also has his own mm -hmm. podcast, and also real, also real quick tip about him. I said he writes down like notes on legal pad. I forgot to mention that. He doesn't have slides. He's a very, I don't want to say very old man, but he's... A little bit analog. He's lived many years on this earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very analog. Yeah. <laughs> and he hasn't really adapted well to like technology. So when I took his course like a few years ago, he wouldn't have slides ready. He'll write down notes on the chalkboard and tell us like point by point what it was. It'll take like 15 minutes at the beginning of class. And it was like a pretty long class anyway. So And we will leave early mm -hmm. anyway. But that was what he would do. And it wasn't just like a typical chalkboard you see in a classroom in elementary school. It's like one of those, those like, how do you say, lecture hall Woo. chalkboards. And he'd fill it Woo. up. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, in the podcast, he, he talked about Dune. And he said, this is like Star Wars for adults. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty right. Because there's, there's politics, there's intrigue. And there's a lot of spect spectacle that you would want to see in a space mm -hmm. film like this. It's so much going on. So much more depth. And I, I don't want to say Game of Thrones in space because Game of Thrones ended up sucking anyway. <laughs> but the good stuff of Game of Thrones are in here because there's like political going ons. There's stuff like they're preparing for mm -hmm. war, but they have to do their duty. Yeah, it, it's. I even said this to myself. It's like the cool concept art you see online <laughs> come to life on the big screen. That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. Yes, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like I was in, oh my God, I'm totally going to, people are going to be like, ew, dork. But I do go on Tumblr on occasion 
<laughs> because I like myself a nice gift set. <laughs> I like to look at pretty things. So, um, yes, I felt like I was in a gift set. So basically, you like going to Tumblr and like the these cool gift sets. Is that what you get your inspiration from? I guess. Uh, you could say so. I I only really like to. I mean, you can't really engage with people on Tumblr. It's like a, a mess. But I do <laughs> like the artists that are on there. There's a lot of people who make these things and. Um, I, I do, I use it for visual inspiration when I, for when I'm writing, I use it for, you know, aesthetically how I want to handle some, some things in my channel. I'm like really into the cyberpunk aesthetic thing. I like neon and, you know, all that shit. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I just love beautiful things. And that was one of the first things that struck me about this film is it was gorgeous. Definitely, definitely like the scope and the scale of like such the ships and everything. And mm -hmm. just the sandworm, that's what scared me oh. as well. Oh, oh man. Oh my God. Because I, I, <laughs> I didn't take it seriously because like stuff similar to that, like Tremors, like the movie Tremors, if you remember with Kevin Bacon, mm -hmm. I never really took it seriously because that, that's such a silly film, you know? <laughs> they, with this, yeah. they, they really showed how dangerous and how grand the sandworm is. It's like, yeah. oh, you can't walk normally. <laughs> you had to do a little dance. That was, I loved that. I could feel that. Like the way they showed the ground, like first sinking and then mm -hmm. like wobbling. And I could feel them struggling to move through that. I loved that scene. And I love little details like that. And the thing that I also really loved about the worm is that it, it was huge, mm -hmm. but it didn't look fake like i wasn't distracted by the cgi of it all i was just seriously Definitely. invested in what was happening um so i really appreciate that and i mentioned this to you earlier as well that i was surprised that this film only only cost them the budget was only 165 million dollars and it yeah. looks like it could have been like close to 500 million dollar <laughs> film i know james that. cameron was like damn it <laughs> <laughs> How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> He's still working on, on the Avatar series. It's been Ugh. 13 years. Wow. Wait. It started in 2009. It's 2022 now. So mm -hmm. that's 13 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he's doing, man. <laughs> I really like James Cameron, and I want him to do well. I want the, the new films to do well. I haven't seen Avatar in a very long time. But it did make a lot of money when it premiered. So okay. it really struck a chord with a lot of people when it premiered. And it had like a lot of ground groundbreaking 3D, groundbreaking visual effects and whatnot. Yeah, I liked it. And I, he's direct, James Cameron's directed some of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, he, yeah, I wanted to see Avatar 2, but all the news I've heard about it, it's just like, it's been delayed by another two years. Oof. What's new? <laughs> What's, what else is new? Yeah. And it's crazy to think about this because I must have been... 13 when i when avatar first came mm. out and guess what it's been 13 years since it came out Ooh. so that means another 13 year old kid might be able to see it soon maybe yeah right it's like <laughs> maybe i don't know what like i said i don't know what he's doing but i hope when it's <laughs> when he's done that it's really good yeah i feel like it needs to be <laughs> definitely so what were your favorite scenes in Dune? Oh, oh my God. Okay. I can't even, there's so many. Okay. Well, I'll say that my first 
Oh my God, there's just so many. Okay, okay. So I think my first favorite scene and the scene that made me appreciate uh, Timothy Chalamet was when he was getting the test from the witch lady and he had to put his hand mm. in the box. The way that he performed that scene, I was like, okay, little man. Okay, I see you. I see you. And I respect what you're doing, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really well-performed scene. And even, I'm not remembering her name, but the woman who played his mother, her performance um, throughout that scene was one of the also one of the reasons that, that made it a really, really good scene. And that fucking scene when Oscar Isaac was dying and oh. he was waiting. To kill the Baron. Yo, yo. I got, I'm getting chills now. I'm getting chills now. It was so good. It was so good. I was just sitting here just staring. I'm I'm thinking that I might have to just do a recap and review because like the footage from my reaction is mostly me just like, you know, just like (laughs) staring at the screen because it was just so damn good. I I really love that. Um, And of course, um, I will go ahead and go towards the um, the end where he had to fight the the guy from the 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 Frey the Freyan tribe, Fremen. Um, sorry, oops. <laughs> um, and at first you think, oh, this guy's going to be an ally. You know, he's supposed to guide him or whatever. And then you realize, no, he's got to fight him to the fucking death. Like what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did not see that coming. And then and then the whole thing about oh, he's never taken a life. And, and the way that he, again, Timothy Chalamet, doing his acting thing, the way he performed having to kill that man after he thought he was supposed to be his guy. Like, I just I just really, really liked um, that stuff. Like, I know a lot of people are going to be in love with, like, the epic scope and the battle and the war mm-hmm. and Jason Momoa's big battle scene he had and everything, but... I'm obsessed with performance. I'm obsessed with what, give me something that's going to make me really, really empathize with this character. Um, And so those are the three moments I think that really sealed the deal for me. Definitely. And especially that part with the Baron. Mm -hmm. You can see how the Baron is still scared of this man, Mm -hmm. even though this man is supposedly dying. Like he can't move at all, can't move his body. And he still puts Mm -hmm. the Holtzman shield on. And he had every reason to because he killed everyone in that room. Everybody. Everyone. I was like, is he going to get him? I don't know if he's going to get him. But he did his damnedest. um, And as much as I hate the Baron. It is very impressive that he survived. <laughs> yeah, very. Um, Speaking of the Baron, like, mm-hmm. what is his name? Is it Stellan Sarsgaard or Peter Sarsgaard? Um, I love him. I love him. He's a really good actor. But anyway, please go ahead. Yeah, so I will say that's one of my favorite scenes as well, the, the Baron. My other one is the, the training where he's training with Josh Brolin's character. I think it's gurney he's training with them and it's like at first it's training and then he says i got i'm just not in the mood right now and that gets him mad like mood does this have to do with mood <laughs> and yeah. like that's when like he starts to like put more elements of like a real fight into it and that was like a really good fight because um not good fight, good scene mm-hmm. because he was just telling him like you don't understand this is life or death right here yeah. you don't know the situation i don't think you understand the grand scope of the situation we're in Mm-hmm. But you have to be prepared for with this what for whatever happens right here. And when he says, I, "You've never met the what do they call this 
the child. I cannot remember, Harkin but they are brutal. Harkin, Harkin the Harkin shits. Yes. Oh, so Harkin and like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, you never met the Harkonnen. They're brutal. And like the way he said mm-hmm. brutal, I'm like, oh, this man yeah. scared them. <laughs> yeah, you can always count on Josh Brolin. <laughs> <laughs> Thanos is scared of the Harkonnen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really amazing scene. Um, and the progression of it where he's just like, mm, and the move. Because, you know, Jason Momoa's character is probably just soft on him and lets him like fuck yeah. around. And, you know, and Josh Brolin was like, no, 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 no. These people chop heads and slice and dice and they'll mm. blow your little ass up. You better fucking get ready, boy. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, a couple other of my scenes as well. I, I really like the, the martial arts in this as well because mm-hmm. a lot of this I've trained in as well. I've trained in Kali and there was a, this was Kali in here as well. It was a specific type. Oh. Um, Balintanawak. So that's why I, re- I was really... Even like the salute was something that we do at the end of the training. So Really? Mm-hmm. I thought they just made that up. I was impressed by the fighting, and I don't even really usually give a shit about that kind of stuff. But yeah, I really loved the fighting style. I didn't realize that was based on a real thing. That's cool. Yeah, it's uh Filipino um, stick fighting. There's like several because it's like the, it's like islands. So like each island had like their own method. There's like Arnis, there's Kali, mm-hmm. there's Sinawali, but they're all kind of like come from the same family. And okay. I, I don't have too much experience in it. So if someone's like getting, getting pissed off at me, like, hey, it's specifically <laughs> this. I'm like, okay, but you get the general idea of what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So Denis Villeneuve, he even said this in like interviews. Since they have the Holtzman shield, guns can't work on them. It has yeah. to be slow moving objects. So like when they get the knife in, they can like kill them. So it's mm-hmm. mostly about like playing chess. They like, do mm-hmm. all these quick movements, try to get them distracted. And then you go in for the kill. So that's that's oh. how that's their strategy for like killing them. And I can see that in the style, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so when what's his name? He has Gurney on the floor for like the training. He's like, I got you. No, oh, but you would have gone as as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what that kind of reminded me of? What was that? Um I'm about ninety nine point nine percent sure that you've seen the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so like when um when he's getting trained by like Raza Ghoul or whatever in the beginning and he's like, Oh, you're gonna risk sure footing for whatever, whatever. That kind of reminded me of that scene where like he mm. thinks he's got him, but he like doesn't and, and I was just like, Oh yeah, because there's gonna be a moment. I know there's gonna be a moment where he's gonna that's gonna come in freaking handy. And uh, maybe I'm wrong. But I think it did actually come when he was fighting <laughs> the guy. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I really love that. Hmm? Are you still talking about Batman Begins? No. <laughs> no. No. I, 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 I transitioned. I was like, if they bring up this move, this I, I really, oh. I got you. It's got to come back. Gotcha. And maybe I'm wrong because my memory is shit. But I feel I like it did, did it. come back. They did it. It's got to come back. I think the principle of like the the training translated into like when he fought that guy to the death. The principle. Yeah, that's what it. I mean. Okay. Well, okay, so the, whatever the principle of it, but I, but there's you know there's always going to be that moment where what he's been training for has to like come to fruition, and that right. was okay. kind of the moment because everybody's like, oh, he's the best fr- framing. Fremen fighter. What is it? Fremen. Fremen. Yeah, Fremen. Fremen. Because <laughs> I, I think. It, I, I watched it with subtitles, so it's kind of like Freeman, but one E taken away, so it's Fremen. Oh, okay. Okay, so he's the best Fremen fighter, but 
this guy's Paul has had his training and they were not expecting that, I will say. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, for me, when the moment came to fruition. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, that's something they also teach in martial arts. Like they say, like, you never want to get in a fight in a street fight because one, you don't know how good the other person is or they might bring friends over and they'll beat you up anyway. <laughs> or two, they don't know what they're doing and they're even more dangerous because they don't know if they're going to hurt themselves or hurt you even more. You're not going to expect something from them. So that, that was like a mistake on the Fremen part because they didn't, they also, like the other guy, the leader, he didn't expect, mm -hmm. um, I think her name is Jessica in the film, Rebecca Ferguson's character, the mom, they didn't expect her to know how to fight and yeah. she knew and she's like, okay, okay, we were wrong. <laughs> we doubt that, that's our bad. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had a feeling that something like that was going to happen. Oh, you know, another thing, um, I'm so excited. I might be getting ahead of myself, but another thing I really mm -hmm. loved was the voice. Whenever they use that voice Oh, shit. the voice. Oh, man. I don't know how they did it in the original movie, but how they did it here, I just loved. There's so many things that happen in this movie that I totally forgot about the voice. I totally <laughs> forgot about it. Even though it's it's an essential, it's essential part of the film. It's an essential part of the story that he, Paul can do this. Because, like, that whole tribe of women that, like, work with the shadows, it's all women. There's no men. Mm -hmm. And... He he was born um, as a, as like a male, whatever, because his mother decides like have him as a male. That that was her choice to do it. They thought she was getting ahead of herself because of the prophecy or whatever. She just took it upon herself. And so I totally forgot the voice. I I, I just thinking <laughs> about like the story, the fight scenes, the ornithopter. That's what they're called. The helicopter with the, that flaps its wings <laughs> like a hum, like a mm -hmm. hummingbird yeah just everything about this movie is just like so cool it's like the type of movie that i never thought would get made if i'm gonna be honest with you i've never thought that movie like this could get made and if it was i don't think it could have been done well but i love that it, it did get made and you had denis villeneuve direct it and he's had great he's had a really good filmography he made mm -hmm. um he did arrival and he also did blade runner 2049 oh. Oh, both of those movies I really loved, and they both looked absolutely fucking gorgeous. Yeah, I remember watching Blade Runner 2049 in theaters, and there mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of people in the, in the theater when I watched it, which I usually prefer anyway, because I don't like getting distracted by really? other people. And because <laughs> <laughs> some people like have their phones out and they like do like take pictures of the screen, they, like, they, they forget to turn their flash off, whatever. Yeah, oh that's God. yeah, that's kind of why I don't really like going to the theater. But in this, for this film, I saw it not expecting much because I liked the first movie. I didn't think they could do a sequel well, especially after like close to like 30 years later. Hmm. And they did it. It was very well done. I really liked it. And I know a movie is really good. If I still think about the film two days after I watched it, yeah, it's a good film. And I thought about that movie like a week straight. That's a good rule of thumb. Um, yeah, I will agree. I'm I'm still thinking about Dune. I thought about Blade Runner for um, a while, and um, I really loved Arrival. So I definitely thought about that for a while. I thought about those creepy ass aliens for a long time. <laughs> um, and actually, that was a film that I really did not mind. Um, the hell is that man's name? The guy who plays Clint Barton in the MCU movies. Whatever the hell I his name. I forgot his name. His weird face. Um, but yeah, I was like one of, 
I was I actually liked his I enjoyed his performance in that. So yeah, I I agree with you. I not that I knew that much about Doom, but everything that I knew about it or had heard about it was that trying to make it was a disaster. <laughs> yes. Um every yeah. every time they tried to do it, it was a disaster. Um and so I was really intrigued um to see if 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 they could competently make um what I had always heard was impossible to make. And what I especially loved about it after having heard that it was so complicated to follow like your Lord of the Rings or your um, Song of Ice and Fire or whatever it is. They explained everything really well, even when mm-hmm. they were doing it in exposition. It was all natural. It was, and I get confused really easily. <laughs> um, so, but I, I was following, I was following from the get-go. I knew what was happening and I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised by that and, and definitely appreciated it. And it was one of the reasons why I was able to sink so deeply into that world because I didn't have to spend time figuring out what the fuck was going on. That yeah. was a plus, definitely. And that's something in the book as well. Like they, he just, Frank Herbert just throws you in. He doesn't really explain stuff. You had to find out along the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad they like took the time subtly like say like what's going on here so like with for example the holtzman shield when like timothy when paul <laughs> said timothy <laughs> when paul first turns it on he like tests it like hitting the, the blade against his hand and it does nothing i mean he slowly puts it and it turns red and he can touch mm-hmm. it i'm like oh okay that's how that works great and mm-hmm. then in that same training scene he says oh fast movements won't work against me that's what gurney says i'm like okay that makes a lot more sense so just like small stuff like that, they don't explain like, oh, the Holtzman shield is developed by Holtzman, and fast guns don't work or whatever. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you, you get that just by watching the film, and they did a very good job with that. Mm-hmm. And I also learned from my studies, from my research, that there were a couple of scenes that were cut from here that were like in the book, but they cut it from the movie just to make it flow mm-hmm. better. So, for example, they knew there was a traitor among them, and they all thought it was. The mom. They all, they all thought it was her because, you know, she's, like, the most suspicious character because she's from, like, the shadows or whatever. And there was, like, a, di- there was, there was a dinner scene. And they're, like, trying to like, be political and all that. It involved other houses. It was just, like, trying to figure out who the traitor was. But they cut that from the film and just made it a surprise. And that was, that was like, a huge surprise for me because it was the doctor who betrayed them. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I did not suspect. He even told Paul, "Don't don't trust the Benny Gesserit because they had their own agenda." Like, bro, you betrayed the whole house. Yeah, I mean, I get why he did it, but it mm-hmm. was definitely a surprise. And then, what did he get in the end? The big fat nothing. <laughs> you yeah, know? that was especially sad. <laughs> That's what he gets for trusting the Harkonnen. <laughs> They're brutal. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I did think it was really cool the way it was done, especially because it led to one of my favorite scenes in the in the movie mm-hmm. um, with the little tooth thing. Um, so yeah, did, I'm I'm glad they made that change because I think that the movie definitely the pacing of the movie definitely deserved that. I I, I feel like it just made things a lot cleaner and a lot clearer, and it just helped me stay invested. To just get rid of all of that with the yeah they didn't it it made a lot more sense that the Harkonnens would just operate out in the shadows out of sight and you don't know when they're gonna strike as opposed to oh let's search for the traitor or whatever yeah no makes sense I like definitely it. and yeah they 
just watching this movie, you're like, yo, what is up with these guys? Because there was like mm. that one dude who was hitting within the walls for like weeks. <laughs> yeah. And almost, almost killed Paul with that thing. That was another one of my favorite scenes. I was like, yo. And like, I don't blame them for missing that because who would do that? <laughs> the Harkonnen, apparently. <laughs> yeah. That just lets you know how freaking intense these guys are. Mm-hmm. That and, and that's another way of fleshing out their um, lore and backstory without having to do or say much. You understand these guys are a serious threat if they are willing to let one of their own dudes <laughs> suffocate in a wall just to assassinate yeah. um, the the son. And that's something I learned from the the Blu-ray special feature. So whenever I can, I borrow the Blu-ray or DVD from the library and watch it and also watch the special features. And they had the film books in there as well. Because, you know, Paul has, like, the film books. They had their own version of film books and their special features. And they talked about the Harkonnen. They are the worst. (laughs) Imagine Jeff Bezos. A sad, satirical version of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk together. They destroyed their own environment, their planet, to increase their profits. They don't care how many people die as long as their bottom line is met through. And that's why they're able to make so much money from the Arrakis. Because he didn't care how many people they killed. He didn't care how many people died during the production. As long as they had their spice, as long as they got the product, they were fine. So mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Okay, that's that says a lot <laughs> right yeah. there. Yeah, wow. <laughs> as shitty as that is, it's a really, really intriguing, intimidating enemy to have in mm-hmm. uh, a film series and i know that um like i said i don't know much about the original but one of the things i do know is that they made the leader of the harkonnens really kind of cartoony and wacky mm-hmm. and like kind of this you know he had like red hair and just it was just like weird <laughs> um but i loved the way they approached the creation of this particular house because i was terrified of those guys like and the way they did the doctor and just oh um what's my baby's name oh what's my baby's name he he plays um the blue guy in the guardians of the galaxy oh um, he was like Batista. yeah um i really he was super super intimidating um yeah and he wasn't even in it that that much but um yeah just like casting someone like him great touch completely sells the brutality of the Harkonnens 100%. So do you have any other other thoughts on the film before I move on to the production? Um, I will say that um, as much as I enjoyed it and as much as I I will give all the props in the world for this being a, quite an achievement, deserves all its nominations, and it does... Um, he, he does deserve a nomination as a director. However, I will say that just as a person of color, I notice trends in Hollywood films that I wish would go away. Like I'm, yeah. I'm really tired of like all the black people dying, yeah, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like really tired of like all the black and brown people like looking towards like this white savior from another place. Like why can't the savior just come from them? Why can't Zendaya's character be the savior? Why do they need this 
this boy that was bred <laughs> to be a savior <laughs> to come down and save them. But that is just my personal experiences as a person of color trying to enjoy genre films and, and television and feeling either left out or knowing the moment I see a person with dark skin show up on screen that they're going to die eventually and usually in service to the white character. I just want that to stop. <laughs> I'd like the doctor's character, great character. I have no idea what happens to her character in the book, but it really fucking sucks that she showed up. She impressed me. I wanted to see more of her. And then she just fucking got killed. Same thing with the guide guy. You may, they made us think that he was going to be Paul's mentor and he got murdered by Paul. <laughs> So it's like, okay, sure, those characters have to exist and those characters need to be cast. Why you got to cast a black-skinned Negro? <laughs> Why is it always got to be the dark-skinned Negro that dies? <laughs> you know, if maybe we could get past that, then this would be like a almost perfect film. Yeah, and that's a valid criticism. That's the criticism behind this film as well, that you're not the only ones who have said that. Because some reviewers even criticized the film for pulling back from the Arabic and Islamic influences that Herbert had used within the novel, mm -hmm. but still appropriating those elements. Yeah. And even the, even, they even said like the original novel was considered to have some element, elements of the white savior narrative and the lack of Mina uh, representation. That's Middle Eastern and North African care, um, American, North African people. Mm -hmm. When they asked Villeneuve about this, he said, and I quote, it's a critique of that. It's not a celebration of a savior. It's a criticism of the idea of a savior, someone that will come and tell another population how to be, what to believe. It's not a condemnation, but a criticism. So that's the way I feel it's relevant. And that can be seen as contemporary. And I do remember that Paul's character wasn't comfortable with the idea of being mm -hmm. their savior. That's true. He wasn't comfortable with that. He wasn't. And I, I also don't like the idea of like the savior of the people comes from like the ruling class. I've never liked that idea. Yeah. Never yeah. liked that. Yeah, never mind them just being white, but like being you know, the ruling class. Yeah. Um, and his response is, I feel, is reasonable. It isn't a condemnation. It is a critique. Um, and if you can look at it that way, then bravo. Some people are just like, well, <laughs> I didn't make it for you. It's my movie. It's my vision, you know? Yeah. So at the very <laughs> least, you know, he's, uh, he's the, the man is not an imbecile. I'm sure he is aware. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that's good to hear. Yeah, it's always good to hear about like people who are like self-aware. Essentially, mm -hmm. it's always good to have that. Yeah. And as far as like production of the film, I want to talk a little bit of the background behind Dune itself. So shortly after its publication in 1965, it, Dune was identified for potential film prospects, and the rights to adapt no the novel to film have been held by several producers since 1971. Attempts to make a film were made, and it was considered to be unfilmable, owing to its breadth of content. And because of the book's status among fans, any deviation from the original material without strong justification has the potential to harm the film's reputation. I will say for myself, I never got into Dune, because I know it's such a heavy read. And my boss told me that she read Dune, and then she got through part one. And she was like done with part one in the book. The first book. And she's like, okay, I need to take a break from this. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a heavy read. I know I, from hearing from other people, it can be a heavy read. Yeah. That's why I haven't really gotten into it. I might I might start reading it. Not anytime soon, though. Yeah. That's like a really take your time kind of thing. 
De- yes, yes. I'm trying to read more autobiographies. Not about more biographies. Mm-hmm. I have one about Ulysses S. Grant, U.S. President, by Ron Chernow. He also wrote the book for Hamilton, which is which inspired the musical. The play, yeah, it's a it's it's a thick book. Okay, it's really big. It's taken me quite a while just to get through a third of it because so much happened Ugh. in this man's life. Wow! And we're still in this book where I'm reading. We're still in the Civil War. and wow. Hasn't gotten to his presidency yet. Yeah. What? Damn. See? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they were making a country back then, so I guess most of them probably did live a great deal more than most of us back then because they were building everything. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And Alejandro Jodorowsky, he acquired the rights in the, seven, in the 1970s to make an extravagant 14-hour adaptation of the book but the project fell through. God. And this ever became the subject of the documentary film Jodorowsky's Dune, released in 2013. And that one has to do with like all the concept art that they made for that movie that was never released and is made into like an art book. David Lynch's Dune, which is the Dune that came out in the 1980s, was produced by Raffaella de Lawrence Lawrence's in 1984. And was intended to be a three-hour film, but it was cut to 137 minutes. And it was poorly received. And having seen a couple clips online, I think it was poorly received because it wasn't that good of a movie. It wasn't good. Yeah. Have you seen a couple clips of that film? I have. Um, and damn, just hearing that they chopped it down that much from three hours, of no wonder it wasn't very good. That was probably a slopped together mess. And David Lynch mm-hmm. is fucking obscure at his best. Yes. <laughs> so fucking, that's one of the reasons why I can't watch Twin Peaks. I'm sure it's wonderful, but David Lynch is weird. <laughs> okay, he's a freaking weird filmmaker. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I, I have seen clips and it was strange. It was strange. It was very David Lynchian. I don't know why they chose David Lynch for that movie because he has such a weird filmography. I I don't know how it would have translated to Dune. Well, if I'm guessing since Kyle MacLachlan is in it that um, they were trying to capture a moment. I'm assuming this is around the time Twin Peaks and all that stuff was at the height of its popularity. Um, so I'm assuming that they were trying to get the trendiest, hottest the most avant-garde director to direct this epic, <laughs> you know, space opera, you know, um, and just did not know what the hell they were doing. <laughs> did not make the right choice at all. Yeah, they could have gotten like James Cameron. Oh, actually, this is before James Cameron made a lot of fame with Terminator. Yeah. And I'm talking about just from the first movie. So probably wasn't his time for that. Hmm. But then in 1996, the producer Richard P. Rubenstein acquired the rights to the novel a live-action miniseries produced by Rubenstein, Frank Herbert's Dune, aired on the Sci-Fi Channel in the year 2000. It was a ratings hit and was generally better received than Lynch's film. Some reviewers criticized the miniseries for lacking the spectacle afforded to a feature film production and for staying too faithful to the book and being dragged down by exposition. Mm, yeah. So, can't please these fans. <laughs> I mean, look, adapting something so dense is really difficult. It is really fucking difficult. Um, and, um, and again, that just kind of 
lets you know just how brilliant the filmmakers were who made this um and just what an achievement it is and i and uh, yeah i am really surprised that um Villeneuve didn't get a an oscar nomination for his directing it's so so weird like one of the biggest snubs one biggest snubs maybe i'm just not up on the politics you know i don't pay attention to that kind of stuff but yeah i do feel like that's kind of a snub he got nominated for almost everything else mm-hmm. except for director Strange. i don't know maybe maybe piss someone off i don't know <laughs> it's possible but yeah so prospects to make a successful adaptation of dune improved after the critical and commercial success of the film series adaptations of the lord of the rings and harry potter both of which maintain most of the work's key characters and plots while managing the limited running time. And I love The Lord of the Rings. I'm going to tell you something. Please do not judge me. But it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work at a movie theater like my first few years in um, uh, New York, right when around that when that series came out. And um, when the last film came out, I saw it 27 times. <laughs> 27 yeah, I mean, it was free because I worked at the theater, so I would just go in there and watch it whenever I had two and a half hours to kill. <laughs> was this during work? Um, <laughs> I won't judge it, was, it if it was during work. It, it depended. <laughs> it depended. Like, sometimes I would spend my lunch break in a theater, but sometimes, like, I would get to work early or, like, I would just, you know, go in there and finish watching one of the shows before I went home or something like that. I just... It's one of the reasons why I liked, why I started watching YouTube reaction channels when I was working at movie theaters. And I got really addicted to going into the theater to, to hear what the audience, how the audience would react. Because I had already seen it and I knew what was going to happen, but they didn't know it was going to happen. So it was always kind of exciting. Oh, okay. Like, ooh, how okay. are they going to react to this scene, you know? And I just was such a huge Lord of the Rings nerd that I wanted to go in there. I'm like, ooh, what are you guys going to think of this scene? You know, even though I've seen it like a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get that. I like watching some like YouTuber reactions, like whenever you say first time watching Rush Hour, and I'll go to like, did it, what specific scene was it? Like, okay, here it is. Do you yeah. understand the words that come out of my mouth? And like, they laugh. Like, yeah, okay, okay. I can get with you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's like how I kind of like decide who to talk to. Like, depending on like how they reacted to a certain scene, hmm. I'm like, okay, they seem like a good person to talk to, like a fun person. I don't know, for some reason, I was addicted to watching people react to Squid Game. And there's like a specific episode. And don't tell me, don't tell me. Go to that. Don't tell no, me. No, I'm not going to tell you what happened. Okay, okay. I'm not going to tell you the number. I'm not going to tell you what happened. Okay, good. There's like a specific episode, and I always go to like this specific moment where something happens, and I'm addicted to seeing it because that's when people like freak out. Flip out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why reaction channels are so popular now, I think. It's that uh, secondhand sort of thrill. It's like being able to feel what that, uh, or living sort of like vicariously through that other person to get that feeling again, to relive that feeling. Anyway. Part of it is like feeling like you're watching with a friend again. Yeah. And part of it is like you see like, you kind of relive the feeling you had when you've watched it for the first time. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So when it came to making Dune, so we're going back to Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary Entertainment acquired the film and TV rights for Dune on November 21st, 2016. And Variety reported in December 2016 that director Denis Villeneuve was in talks with the studio to direct the film. Villeneuve expressed his interest in the project in September 2016, saying that, quote, a long-standing dream of mine is to adapt Dune. It's a long process to get the rights, and I don't think I will succeed, end quote. Veneuve said that he felt he was not ready to direct a Doom movie until he had completed projects like Arrival 
and Blade Runner 2049 mm-hmm. with, his, with his background in science fiction films. Brian Herbert, son of Frank and the author of the later books and Dune series, confirmed that Veneuve would be directing the project in February 2017. That's an interesting quote, and it makes me respect him because he obviously deliberately was like, nah, fam, no, no, no. That's my shit. I'm going to wait until I have. And that's one of the things that most film studios and filmmakers don't do. They don't wait until it's right and it's good. They don't take their time to find the right person like that. They just rush so they can make the money. So I'm glad to hear that. Definitely. he. I wouldn't necessarily say he doubted himself. He just said he didn't have the experience yet. And once he was ready, he'll be ready. And he he became ready. He got ready. Yeah, that's humble. That's fucking, I don't, you don't really hear many directors that humble. No. <laughs> about their craft. Certainly not James Cameron. <laughs> so some of the news previous collaborators on the films of Arrival and or Blade Runner 2049, so like from both of these films, returned for Dune, including film editor Jill Walker, production designer Patrice Vermey, visual effects supervisor Paul Lambert, sound designer and editor Theo Green, sound editor Mark Bugini, and special effects supervisor Gerd Nefzer. A lot of talented people worked on this film, and I didn't know Roger Dickens wasn't on this movie because he worked on Blade Runner 2049. He's a great cinematographer. But Greg Frazier really brought it with this film as well. And Game of Thrones language creator David J. Peterson was confirmed to be developing languages for the film in April 2019. Uh-huh. They brought a lot of talent. Yeah, and when you have... A- team that's willing to follow you from project to project especially a team that talented um that says something man loyalties uh i don't know much you know i'm let me stop pretending like i know how hollywood operates but (laughs) (laughs) but um i believe um that it is a very good sign when you can bring on board that caliber of talented people and they are loyal to you from production to production that's that helps that's how he was able to take what he did for arrival and blade runner and elevate it for doom um i don't you know who knows what would have happened if he didn't have this exact team but i certainly don't think it would have been the same so definitely yeah so which do you want to hear about first do you want to hear about the visual effects do you want to hear about the music or do you want to hear about the fighting style music I love the music. Okay, so music was composed by Hans Zimmer, the man. The man. I get a two my own horn. I'm I listen to his music a lot. I'm into one percent of his listeners. I listen to his music the most <laughs> for like on Spotify, like for like the past six years. That's what I listen to the most. Nothing wrong with that. Every year, it's always like, who was your number one artist you listen to the most? Hans Zimmer. Every year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's a he's a really great artist. I've everything I've heard from him I've loved. And I definitely have a playlist on Spotify that's chock a block full of film scores and his takes up most of it. So yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> no to talk to Batman. He's had a lot of work. He's had a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So he worked on this movie instead of working with Christopher Nolan for Tenant. And he didn't want the soundtrack to sound like his previous works and use instruments atypical of Western Orchestra, an approach that he called anti-groove. And let me look up the notes. So I also looked up the special features on the Blu-ray. And there was one like mini documentary about the music itself. And let me just look it up real quick. Yeah, so the special feature was called A New Soundscape. And here's what Denise said. And Dune, rhythm is everything. Rhythm is life. Rhythm is also death. Because 
as they said in the movie, if you walk normally in the sand, you'll die because the sandworm will get you. So they developed the soundscape as they were shooting the film. And as Joe Walker, the editor, said, he was also developing the cut. So they were shooting the movie, and they were also developing the soundscape, and they were also cutting the movie as they were doing all that at the same time, which usually doesn't happen. Usually it's like in order, yeah. but they did it all at the same time for this. Wow. And I I don't know why. I guess they're like particular about that. Hmm. It's interesting. Very interesting indeed. And for the voice, they said the voice was a challenge. It had to sound natural and not like a synthesizer effect. They said, we came up with the idea of summoning the voices of their ancestors, which we brought out as as he tried to summon his own voice. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like the voice of the ancestors commanding someone to, like, give me the blade, cut off, give me the water, whatever. That makes a lot of sense. I love that. Mm-hmm. And they never felt comfortable with it until the last few days of the sound mix. I actually also really kind of love that. You know, I've never been on, you know, big budget film productions, but I've working in advertising. I've definitely been on my share of um, productions and the whole thing about scrambling to, I mean, you know, you're a filmmaker, the whole scrambling (laughs) to the last minute thing. Um, But, but you also can arrive at some really, really awesome shit when you, when you work like that. So I don't know. I am. I am really fascinated by the film process. Uh, you know, I'm also kind of a <laughs> scatterbrain, so I'm easily overwhelmed by <laughs> a lot of information. So, <laughs> um, so that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't actually end up being in film because I just I can't. My little world of YouTube videos is just enough for me. But I I really appreciate hearing. And I'm just going to keep saying appreciate because I just feel like that's that's just how I feel about these artists. I, you know, I've, a lot of fans these days I find are so demanding and entitled and yeah, they're fans. But it's like nowadays people expect that being a fan of something means that you have some sort of control over how artists create their art. And I just don't think that's true. You could critique it. That's what art is for. But I don't know. Like, I, like for example, the whole thing with the way that they made um, the last episode of The Mandalorian. It was a glorious moment, but it was ruined by how people just critiqued the way that they did it. Like, I'm talking about, I don't know if anybody, I'm going to spoil it, but, you know, Luke showed up. And it was ruined by the fact that people critiqued the way that it was done. It was like, damn, can't y'all just fucking appreciate the way it was done and understand that these people are working their fucking asses off? (laughs) You know, so just hearing how they played around with the way the voice was going to sound and they played around with the soundscape that they were building and they were playing around with this stuff up to the last minute and they were able to produce Mm -hmm. something so beautiful. People who criticize... I, I just, I don't have any time for you. I, I appreciate that shit. That's awesome. Yeah. And also, I, I don't think people know how to criticize well these days. True. I know there are like a lot of uh, educated film critics who will say like, I don't know how to describe it because I'm not very articulate with this, but they know how to critique a film because they have experience doing it. They know exactly what the, what's going on with the film, what makes it work well, what doesn't make it work well. And it, it feels like the popular YouTube critique channels follow the format of those honest trailers of like <laughs> the movies i'm not sure i forgot the name of the actual video but they'll say like oh that's a close-up on his glasses fail or yeah, like something like yeah, that even though yeah. it's, it's it's intended to be a joke right. it's intended to be a joke but i think that flew over a lot of people's heads yeah and they kind of like went 
extreme with it with their own versions of it. When you're saying about the Luke's part, there there's like this channel. I think it's called Corridor. Yeah, Corridor Digital. They made their own version of that Luke scene, mm-hmm. and they say they made it better than the actual scene in the show. And Mark Hamill even had to say, like, you guys did a very good job, but don't say you did it better than the production team. They worked really hard on that. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a lot of people just kind of, even even if they do understand how things work behind the scenes, it's just this world now where everybody thinks that their own experiences and their own opinions are all that matters. People have gotten seriously confused about what an opinion is. Mm-hmm. It is not a fact. <laughs> an opinion is not a fact. It is your own personal taste. It is very subjective. So... Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just wish people <laughs> would remember that sometimes. Just because you like it, that doesn't mean that this is factually a good product. Just because you dislike it, that doesn't mean that this is factually a not good product. It just means that you don't like it. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> you know, but anyway, moving <laughs> on, because I'll get on my soapbox, honey. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something else about No Way Home, but I was like, you know what? <laughs> Best leave that alone for right now. That's another episode. That's a whole other episode for me. Um, Let's get back to Hans Zimmer. He was trying to define a new musical language. And here's what he said. Whenever you come across science fiction movies, you'd hear overtly Western instruments, trumpets blaring away and strings. And you go, did this culture really just do what our culture did and build violins and oboes? What's a French horn on Arrakis? And so, yeah, he spent a lot of time making the sounds, building the instruments, and getting people to learn how to play the instruments in a different way. And the score was inspired by the wind, the sound of the wind on the sand, and the rhythm. He also said, if you surround yourself with incredibly brave, reckless, and talented people, they'll lead you into new directions automatically. Mm. And that's what he said about Denis Villeneuve. And that speaks to the whole film, just to the whole cast and crew of this movie. There's so many talented people that work on this movie. They were dedicated to it, and they had a very good leader who was leading the project, which was Denis Villeneuve. Mm. And if he's not going to win the Oscar, well, guess what? He's going to win the Jason, which is the Hit List Podcast <laughs> Award. <laughs> Two Jason. I've always joked that like I've never approved of like the way the Academy Award will like nominate some people but not others, and how some people will win over others. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? They don't appreciate enough of these people. I'm going to make my own award. You should. All right, and I'm going to give them. I'm going to give them like a piece of paper that says, Jason Ramirez approves your film. You won this year. <laughs> you should totally do your own awards, though. That would be cool. I will do that. I, I, I think that'll be something for season five, you know, like introducing like, what are the top 10 films of this year? Top 10 directors, whatever. Uh, the Hit List Podcast Award. Yeah. <laughs> the 2020, 2022 Hit List Podcast Award. And I'll have all, my own Wikipedia page. Why not, man? <laughs> you know your shit. Everybody else is out there doing it. <laughs> <laughs> If the Razzie Awards can exist, so can the Hitless Podcast Award. You heard it here first, folks. The Razzies. So what do we hear next? We have visual effects and the fighting styles. Let's go for visuals because I'm going to save the best for last. We'll talk about the fighting styles last. So let's do visuals. All right. So you know how we talked about blue screen and green screen? Yeah. For this film, they had sand screen. What in the shit is that? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. That's what I said. So sand screen is basically a huge screen that's like brown that looks like the color of sand and they use this because green screen and blue screen they're using the same effect for green screen and blue screen because of the visual effects but they found that when it when you put the film in negative mode the sand screen was blue 
And so it'll work well. It'll translate well into putting up these effects. Oh. So, like, there are scenes where it looks like they're in the desert. They're not in the desert. They're surrounded by sand screen and he added visual effects to add to it. Oh. And so when the light reflects back onto the actors, it's not green or it's, it's not blue. Yeah. It's brown, reflecting the color of the environment. That's clever shit. That is some clever shit. And just, there's just so many things happening. I'm not even going to the wardrobe for this movie because this would be an even longer oh, <laughs> podcast episode to edit. The, the Baron had his own costume made. And that just, I'm going to talk about this real quick. That took seven hours to put on. The makeup and the outfit. Seven hours. When? I've heard four hours for some makeup, but that whole get up, seven hours. Oh How? When did he even shoot? When did they shoot? <laughs> <laughs> when did he have to show up on set? Jesus Christ, man. Did the man sleep? I mean, I guess he could sleep while they was shoving him into that plastic sock. They have these things where like they put like little like sticks in the nose so they can still breathe. Mm-hmm. But they look so thin. They look like noodles, you know, like spaghetti noodles. And I don't know how they can do that because, like, I'm not sure about other people, but one one of my nostrils is, like, more narrow than the other. Mm. So I, I breathe more from one nostril. So I'm like, how how do you not panic when your full face, your full head is all in that except for your nose? You gotta, that's mind over matter, man. That takes practice and he probably had to like meditate and take some volume or some xanax or something who knows definitely why actors do what they do (laughs) (laughs) i know for jim carrey when he did the grinch they called in a specialist from the cia a torture specialist telling him how to how to withstand torture and one of the things they were able to do is like smoke cigarettes Hmm. that's how he's able to like withstand the amounts of like makeup on him interesting but yeah for visual effects just the sandworm itself and like the other visual effects happening i will say the ornotho ornothoopter i'm gonna say helicopter their their own helicopter so their helicopter it doesn't look like anything we've seen we've seen in real life Hmm. it's it flaps its wings like a dragonfly Hmm. it looks like a dragonfly and flaps its wings like a dragonfly slash hummingbird and the way they shot it they had actual helicopters in some scenes because the way like the wind blows and helicopters, you can't really, if you want to recreate that, it's going to be really hard to do it. So they had helicopters, they're doing some scenes and they replaced it visually with the Onofodopter. And that's why it looked like those things were real because it was, um, there were actual helicopters in the desert. They just replaced it with that science fiction machine. Another thing that like, I didn't even, I just looked real. I just completely accepted it. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of like practical and, and visual effects that they were able to blend it very well. They spent months on a sandworm, not just designing it, but also understanding the physics of what a worm that size, how it would move through sand mm-hmm. and how the sand would look like when it would emerge from the sand. So they studied real world desert camouflage creatures to understand how they would interact with their own environments. And they tried to apply some of those lessons to how the sandworm might function. The worm is supposed to look like a survival survivor of the ages and had that prehistoric quality to it. And it scales in a rough skin that has been grinded by the sand for centuries. And they spent months understanding how a worm of that size would move through a huge field of sand and find a balance between artistic goals and what the real world mechanics would be. So that's the stuff they worked on for this to make to see like what looks real, what looks more artistic, and finding the balance between those two. And here's the thing I didn't know when I watched the movie, but 
the Fremen view the sandworm kind of like a god. Ah. You notice this in the music changing as well. When Paul first sees the sandworm in its huge magnificence, whatever, <laughs> they change the music. It's not just a man seeing a beast, it's a man seeing God. You know, that makes sense because that the sandworm does remind me of a sort of a Lovecraftian, like ancient being that, you know was here long before us and will be here long after us so yeah that that makes sense and actually when the lady the doctor that i liked um when she died she said something that kind of clued me into that she was saying that she only worships one god and when she like kind of thumped the ground it indicated to me that it was the worm which i thought was interesting so good to know look at you with the with the little facts and informationals (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish there was the commentary track, but they had over an hour of special features on, on the Blu-ray. So Man. I didn't expect to watch all of it in one sitting, <laughs> but I watched all of it. <laughs> it's fascinating. I love that kind of shit. So let's talk about the fighting styles in this yeah. film. So there are actual fighting styles inspired from real life that were used in the Dune movie. So martial arts trainer and stunt coordinator Roger Ewan was in charge of adapting Dune's combat styles for the movie. He also worked with the cast and guiding the martial arts training that they did to prepare for the roles. And quick fun fact about him. He also came from like a poverty in his background. And so he wanted to do martial arts when he was a kid, but his parents couldn't afford it. And so he would like watch TV and learn from books. And it wasn't until he was like 18 or 19 that he was able to like pay for his own martial arts education. He moved to Hollywood and the first studio he walked in was Chuck Norris's studio. And he trained under Chuck Norris. (laughs) Chuck Norris. Yeah. He was starstruck because he's seen him in that one Bruce Lee movie and he knew about his work. And yeah, he trained on a Chuck Norris. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting life story right there. Chuck Norris was a good fighter, man. Mm -hmm. So here's how he says he breaks down like the vision of the various fighting styles in the film in an interview with Kung Fu Kingdom, which is a website that's dedicated to martial arts. I love that name, Kung Fu Kingdom. So he said... Designing the specific fighting styles for the Emperor's Guard, the Sardaukar, the Atreides, and the Harkonnens were basically the first three things that we focused on in this first film. For the Atreides, because their weapons are a bit like a shorter sword, I use more Filipino styles of Kali and Eskrima. The Sardaukar are more of a group, like a cross between Viking Berserkers and the Samurai. Finally, the Harkonnens, because of their bestial and sadistic quality, I liken more to the barbarians of old, like maybe Genghis Khan and the Mongols, yeah. even in the way that they move. They're efficient, but they're not very precise or stylized. The Atreides are very precise and they have techniques that work specifically for the weapons that they use. These are the three kinds of systems that we wanted to identify and that will hopefully give the audience something pleasing pleasing to look at and something to take away from. Yeah, and I can see the differences mm-hmm. in their styles too. And of course, the House of Trades style is like badass as fuck. It actually... Yeah, yeah. It's- <laughs> I was like, okay, little <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, I totally... I'm appreciating your, your style, bro. Yeah, and there's this um, a series of videos from the New York Times called Anatomy of a Scene, where directors will come in and di- dissect their scenes. Denis Villeneuve did one for like the training sequence, and he said it's inspired by Balintawak Eskrima, also known as Balintawak Arnis, which is a Filipino martial arts style developed in the 1950s. And the fighting style involves blocking opponents' attacks using both a weapon and a freehand, he said, quote, it's closer to a chess game than a filming fighting sequence. When you fight someone with a shield, which is like the horseman shield that they have, 
The idea is to distract them with moves in advance. You want to distract them with a specific move so you can slowly bring the blades into their body. It's a totally different way of fighting. It's a way of fighting that is very fast, like a chess game. So then Paul's doing all that pop, 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 pop with the guy. And he was like, are you toying with me? It was like, but I was like, I mean. <laughs> yeah, you obviously can't stop him. And after like training some martial arts back in community college, a little bit after that, I will say when I will watch movies, I'll be like, wait a minute, did they just do the Heaven Six, <laughs> which is like doing like something like that? Oh yeah, I like they did, they did. I'm glad you know your stuff, child. So yeah, it's it just seeing like once you like know some stuff, you like see like oh, I see it everywhere now. <laughs> so you'll see it in places like Arnis specifically. You see it in Mission Impossible Three, Resident Evil Apocalypse, in the Bourne series, and even in Disney's Raya and the Last dragon which is like southeast asian inspired mm-hmm. film yeah i've seen it it's a good movie i haven't seen it yet but i do i have seen like that one fight scene uh i don't i don't know between what two characters because i haven't seen it yet but i was like oh okay yeah, it's, a good movie. it's a good fight scene i was surprised <laughs> i was actually surprised and filming during the covid19 pandemic he said it was very difficult because it was like from like the start of it you mm. know mm. 2020 t- two years ago we're coming up with oh wow we're coming up with the anniversary again he said by the way dune was the very first film in america to come back into production right after lockdown with covid protocols in place we were the test case, essentially the lab rats. We will be tested three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we had to make sure everyone, everybody was locked down and quarantined and not going out. And so the first week of production, we went back to 8711. They do fight choreography for other Hollywood films. He said, we went back to 8711 into previous rehearsal and training with new notes of what Denis wanted. We had to prep the main piece, which was a fight sequence featuring Paul Atreides. Denis was in Montreal watching everything on camera. Basically, we will shoot everything and it would all go back to Denis. And... When he says about like doing action choreography, he says, I would hope to introduce first and foremost to take into consideration, does it serve the story? And does it serve the character in line with his concept and his vision? It wasn't about how flashy I could make a starting fight sequence or an actor look, but rather how frenetic, eye-catching, and believable we can make this piece of action. Nice. So that's just his philosophy into the fight choreography. Nice. Very nice. And when he trained the actors, Brolin had a little difficulty learning his stuff, but eventually he was able to do it. And Timothy Chalamet, it was easier for him because he has some Taekwondo experience and he has dancing experience, which translates very well into fight choreography. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Because like having trained both martial arts and fight choreography, I will say it's easier for a dancer to learn fight choreography than for a martial artist for, to learn fight choreography. Because my instinct was to hit the person, <laughs> actually hit the person. I'm like, no, I can't. And then I like hesitate. Like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. Like, Jason just yeah. finished. You have to move back as you do the fist, Jason. Like, I, I, I can't do it. It's and, a dance. It's a dance, yeah. And then once I realized it's a, it's the dance, I was like, oh, okay. Well, I don't have any dancing experience, so <laughs> I, I need to learn some dancing experience. So I want to finish with, like, Dune Part 2. So it's been confirmed that the scheduled release date for Dune Part 2 is going to be October 20th, 2023. Wow. Hopefully it doesn't move anymore because they mo- Dune was supposed to come out in 2020. But they moved it because of the pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so 2023. That's... I was going to say that's fast. But if they've already... If it's already been delayed, then I... You know, they've probably been working on it. So, good. Because I want to see it. So, I want to see it too. Like, what you said first about, like, the the casting and, like, how, like, the White Savior part of the film, I, was, I also wasn't a fan of. The other part was how it ended. Mm. Like, I was like, okay... We're here, and wh- what? Oh, it, this is only the beginning. No, this is the end. 
The end of part one. No, Zendaya, man. what? Lord of the Rings should have trained us for that. Child. You gotta wait. You gotta wait till the next movie. It was two and a half hours. You know, I had a feeling of, you know, and especially that's just the way Hollywood seems to operate these days. It's like, why make mm-hmm. money off one when you can break that shit up? That's what they did to The Hobbit which was a tragic mistake (laughs) but um i don't obviously don't think it's a mistake here i think that um it deserves more time it deserves another two and a half hour movie frankly because i'm highly invested in this world which i just i keep saying this but it's true and it's one of the reasons i chose these two films i did not expect this (laughs) i did not expect (laughs) it and it's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite movies of the year because I was so surprised by it. Real quick. So when you emailed me your two choices, Spencer and Dune, that same day I saw Letterboxd, like, which is after you sent me the email. Mm-hmm. You know about Letterboxd, right? No. What's up with that? Yeah, Letterboxd is like a social media site. I think like IMDb, but social media. So people will post their own reviews of movies. Oh, okay. oh. I think that's the same list I sent you, like the past films. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. So... There's this list that was made because people can make their own list of like favorite films. This list is called 2021 films in which a young member of the royal family shapes against their constraints and experiences, strange visions, all while trying to avoid massive parasites that threaten to destroy them all. Guess which two films are on there? What? Dune and Spencer. (laughs) That's hilarious. I didn't get it when I first like saw this. Like I have no idea what's going on. Strange visions, what? And now seeing this movie, it yeah. makes sense. It makes sense. That's hilarious. I love that. And what a category. <laughs> this list was wow. published three months ago. So before we haven't even had a conversation together. So I gotta get on this letterbox thing. I didn't I'm I'm so old and out of the loop. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's a it's something I trust more than other like places like Rotten Tomatoes because I'll read reviews by people they go into like you can go as short as you want you can go as detailed as you want but there are people who like really say like mm-hmm. what they liked about the movie inspiration whatever and so I really trust it except for a film that's very popular like No Way Home that's like the most reviewed film in the, in the website those reviews are just based on euphoria <laughs> that's what that is you know that's what that's what all that is is euphoria child they got their little childhood dreams <laughs> came true so of course it was amazing it was amazing best movie of the year so that concludes our conversation today thank you so much kendra for being here i really appreciate you talking to me about spencer and dune these are actually your choices of films and i'm very glad we got to see them and talk about them yay thanks for having me this was a lot a lot a lot of fun i really love talking about movies especially with people who know what the hell they're talking about (laughs) (laughs) same same here i like talking about movies too uh so let me ask you were the movies a hit or a miss with you they were both hits both of them i i really liked them and i was prepared for them to be misses honestly um but yeah they were both hits i would say go see it see them wherever you can get them yeah definitely i had to say the same thing as well i didn't expect to like spencer as much as i did as much as i do now mm-hmm. and dune i i'll say this i also had the same <laughs> thing like someone on twitter said this like i'll tell you what that's warped grew on me <laughs> and that's warped is referring to timothy chalamet <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> a little 
little old Timothy Chalamet. They're both hits for me. And I think I'll see them again sooner rather than later. So yeah. where can we find you on social media? Not that I'm very good at it, but sure, if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram and Twitter under B Blue Tube, and I try to post as often as I can. But uh, you know, that's not usually very often. But 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 I'm there. I'm so there, <laughs> right there with you. So meet me. <laughs> and your YouTube channel? It is Black and Blue Tube Sentence Case on YouTube. Um, it's just me looking dumb, watching MCU and Marvel <laughs> stuff, but also getting into um, more serious uh, film and TV reviews. So be on the lookout. Awesome. So that's it for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. My name is Jason, and until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hit List Podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hit List Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hit list underscore podcast. 